Amen. Well, good morning. How are you? Happy Father's Day. What a blessing is it to be together. As we begin this morning, I just remind you in, in your hearts as we're centering around God's Word and thinking about the things that He has to say for us, we do have a very large mission team on their way home, so we remember them this morning and thank God for them as they uh, travel back after a very fruitful and productive but yet exhausting um, nine days of labor in the field. So we're so grateful and so thankful. Well, let's pray together and we're going to look at John chapter 21. Let's pray first, okay? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning and Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. And Lord, as we look at this particular place in Scripture this morning. We're struck by the reality that you wanted us to know this exact thing about you. You wanted us to see this picture. And so, Lord, we need to see it this morning. So we pray that you'll give us ears to hear and hearts willing to receive your perfect word would do its perfect work in us. And we give you the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. John 21, it's on page 1250 in the Pew Bible in front of you. So you can grab that hardback Bible if you made it in without a Bible this morning. John chapter 21. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, well, then you know a couple things. You know that we're almost to the end, but you also know that at the end of chapter 20, it seems like the gospel of John is over. And that last section of, of John 20, it seems like the end of the book. John 20 says in verse 30, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Period. End of story. That's what the whole gospel's been about. There's your purpose statement. That's the perfect place to end. We've seen all the amazing things. We've, we've Started with the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we've traveled through. Remember, in the beginning, we were in all the encounters that Jesus had with various people. And we moved through section after section. And we've seen the entire story of the gospel laid out before us. And it sort of culminates in this final statement of purpose that these things are written that we might believe and have life in His name. Then why... Chapter 21. Why 21? Well, uh, because someone that Jesus loves very deeply is hurting. Because there's some work yet for Jesus to complete. Someone that Jesus has big plans for that doesn't know that, doesn't realize that, isn't aware of what's in store for him. But God has a plan and a purpose, and there's still something yet for him to do. So if you have your listening guide, your first blanks are this. The story's not over. It's not over. 
It may seem that it would be over. It may seem that everything that needs to be said has been said, but it's not over. And we can tell that by as soon as our eyes peer down to chapter 21 and we look at verse 1 and the scripture says, and these things Jesus, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself, colon. In other words, what's about to follow is a description of this encounter and Jesus revealing himself to some people. And we're about to understand how this story is, is not finished. But after these things, after what things? After some quite monumental things. After Jesus is arrested, wrongly accused, tried in mock trial, after mock trial, beaten beyond recognition, hung on a cross, crucified, died, buried in a borrowed tomb, dead for three days, and then rises to glorious life. After these things, this happens. So there's some big things. But you see... There's more to the story. In other words, this is the way I wrote it for you. The story of God is that Jesus did something incredible in history so that he could do something incredible in us. You see, because the reason it seems like the gospel's over is because Jesus has done the incredible thing that he came to do. That his work is completed. He's already said in John chapter 17 that I've finished the work, Father, that you sent me to do. And so, although the resurrection is the monumental, earth-shattering, history-splitting moment in time where everything changes, it's not just about God doing something incredible. It's about God doing something incredible so that he can do something incredible in us. And that's what this final chapter is all about. So if you haven't figured it out, I mean, surely most of you have, this someone who's hurting, who Jesus has big plans for, his name is Peter. And Peter has had quite an interesting journey, has he not? And especially in the Gospel of John. John, the disciple whom Jesus loves, by the way, Make sure to point out all the craziness in Peter's journey. Now, Jesus and Peter, they've had some high moments. I mean, you know, if you, if you look at those two, if you look at John and Peter side by side, you realize John's always first to believe. Peter's always first in zeal. Now, some of the high moments, in other words, the zeal sometimes is amazing and incredible in that like when Jesus says to the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter's the one that speaks up and says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. I mean, high moments. And Jesus responds and says, well, flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you. That's a big moment. That's a good moment. But for every good moment with Peter, there's five or six difficult moments. There's, there's maybe one of the lowest moments, clearly not the lowest, but way up on the list of bad moments 
when Jesus said that the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem to die on a cross, and Peter, who just acknowledged that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, says, rebukes the Son of the living God and says, no, 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 no. You're not going to do that. You're not going to die on a cross. Never, Lord, he said. This will never happen to you. It's a low moment when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. That's a, that's a tough moment. You'd, you'd think after a moment like that, a person would just lay low, keep their mouth shut, not say much. But, you know, Peter just keeps on. He keeps on. I mean, there's, there's, the, you know, there's the moment of Jesus walking on water. And there's, you know, but it, it's, to me, it's the moments of Peter just rejecting what Jesus is doing and saying right in front of him just because of his disbelief, because of his lack of understanding. Remember, it was just before the crucifixion in the upper room when Jesus got a basin of water and knelt down and began to wash the disciples' feet. It was Peter who said, oh, no, you're never going to wash my feet in John chapter 13. And then Jesus had to straighten him out again. But it was the low moment of all low moments. It was the night of the crucifixion that was the bottom of the barrel for Peter. I mean, even after all of the things that have transpired, even after, remember the, the, the morning we studied the Garden of Gethsemane and the, the legion of soldiers show up, fully armed soldiers show up. The other gospel writers tell us that the disciples had two swords with them. But Jesus doesn't grab one of the swords. He, gra he whips out his fishing knife and tries to, you know, kill one of the soldiers and ends up chopping his ear off. Jesus has to put his ear back on. And even after all of that, it's in the courtyard Standing off at a distance as Jesus has been beaten and scourged. People begin to ask Peter, hey, aren't you one of his followers? You talk like a Galilean. No, 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 I don't know him. You know, there's the, there's the, the person who's... Uh, the guard at the door, there's a little girl that comes to Peter. and Eventually, Peter's so determined to convince everyone that he didn't have uh, any dealings with Jesus that he begins to curse as if, you know, clearly I'm not one of his followers using language like this. And then there's that moment I like the way Luke captures the moment when the Bible says in Luke chapter 22 as Peter denies him for the third time and the rooster crows and Luke says, and the Lord turned and looked to Peter. He looked across that courtyard. I just imagine what that look must have been like. And Peter remembered what had been said and the Bible says he went away and wept bitterly.
That was the bottom. And how do you recover from that? How do you come back after that moment? Think about the time that Jesus was in the tomb. We don't know where Peter was. The Bible doesn't tell us. We assume he was somewhere alone, isolated. There's no record of where he ran off to. But think of how he felt in the time that he thought Jesus was gone forever. And their last moment was that horrible moment. Shame is a powerful emotion, isn't it? And it will drive us to feel things that we never want to feel and to do things that we never thought we'd do. And clearly, Peter is, is just crushed. You know, people walk away from God all the time. People, I meet people in their in their shame and in their hurt quite often. And I think you do too. Maybe you've had a season in your life where you maybe ran away and wept bitterly and there was a time where you were alone and separated and left to the devices of your own imagination. I remember a couple years ago, I, I need to... Uh, get a desk for my study. And uh, so I found this guy who had a desk that seemed like it would suit my purposes. So I called him up and he said, yeah, I, I got it. And so I drove over to his place of business and walked in and there it was. And so we talked for a few minutes, and I said, well, I'll take it. And uh, the only thing is I need to, I mean, it was, you know, going to be, I could see that it was going to be a real pain to get it out of the place where it was, and then I was going to have to figure out how to transport it. And so I just mentioned to him, I said, look, I, I can't take it today, but I've got to get it in the next couple of days because I'm about to leave the country and he said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Brazil. And he said, really? I said, yeah. And he said, I grew up in Brazil. Now, he has zero Brazilian accent, and he looks just like me. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. And so he started explaining to me how when he was young, his parents moved their family to Brazil, and he started telling me about all the adventures he had growing up in Brazil and just all these things that I was familiar with and he was familiar with. And so we're just having this big conversation. The whole time I'm thinking, this is so crazy that we've been to the same places. He's familiar with all. I mean, you know, when I go to Brazil, I go to the middle of nowhere. And, and he knew where that was and he knew about it. And we were talking about the culture and all sorts of things. And, and then I said, so why were you, why did your parents... Move you to Brazil. Now, in the course of the conversation, he's blurted out multiple expletives. 
And he says to me, well, my parents were missionaries. And I went, oh. And then he said to me, why are you going to Brazil? And I said, you might want to sit down for this one. So I told him, and when I did, shame just poured over his face. And so it was an opportunity for us to talk about all the years that he'd been out of church. And I noticed that when he talked about his childhood, he had such amazing memories. His countenance lit up, and he was so happy. He he took me into his office and showed me he had all sorts of things in his office from Brazil that I was familiar with. And he was showing me all these artifacts and different things. And it was just, he was so happy. And then everything changed. And as we started talking, he told me about how painful his life had become and how uh, his wife had been severely injured in a car accident and uh, had had countless surgeries and was unable to really recover and needed almost continual care. She was in excruciating pain all the time. And I just sat and listened as he told me about uh, just a year earlier that his son had committed suicide and that him and his wife had found him. And, oh, man, it was super hard. And we just 20 minutes earlier were having this wonderful, happy, exciting conversation. And then everything changed. And, but I was able to, to minister to him and pray with him and invite him to come to church. And I actually, uh, it's so that, that encounter so impacted me that when I went back to pick up the desk, I. I bought him a book that I knew would be very helpful to him and his wife in their situation and, and just wrote all through the book some encouraging notes to him. And shame. See, the shame's there. But you don't know that it's there until some, there's a connector point. It, it comes out when it's exposed. So you can be filled with shame and you can hide the fact that the shame is there. But then through maybe the course of just a random conversation or maybe you see someone that knows you and knows of the source of your shame or whatever the case may be and then it all starts to come back again. Well, Peter, he doesn't want to see anybody I'm sure at this point he doesn't want to be around people who know about the mistake he's made now we know from two places in scripture that Jesus after he resurrected he sought Peter out so we know that there's been a connecting point and so Peter knows that Jesus is alive But he's still battling. He's still struggling. And we know this because there are all sorts of little reminders of that 
in the story of the post-resurrection. In Mark chapter 16, when Mark tells the story of the angels talking to the women at the tomb that morning, remember we looked at Mary Magdalene just a few weeks ago? What well, did you notice that the angels say in Mark 16, 7, go and tell the disciples and Peter. Well, he's one of the disciples. Why does the angel single out Peter as he sends the women back to tell them that the Lord's alive? Well, because I don't think Peter would have known whether or not he was invited. I don't know that Peter felt much like a disciple at this point. I don't know that Peter felt like he was part of the, the group at this point in his life. I think he was struggling as to where he fit and what his future held. And they were all struggling, but I think he was in a very particular and deep way. He's asking questions like, well, what am I now? And, and who am I? And, and what, where do I go from here? And so the Bible says in verse 2 of John 21, the story begins to unfold. And of course, it starts with Simon Peter. Him and his compadres, Thomas, the twin, Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. I just feel like if I was one of the two other disciples, I'd be bummed out by that verse. Just seems to me like, well, you don't really matter, so you're just some other. You know, John, if the disciple whom Jesus loves, is making sure that we know who he feels like is important or not important, I guess. I don't know, but there's just two disciples that they were around doing something. We're not really sure who they are. Verse 3, but Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And so they said to him, well, we're going also. So they're hanging out. Now, now these, everyone in this group, probably, the assumption is, these, are the, these would be the original Galileans that Jesus called in the beginning to be his followers, except for Thomas. Thomas would be the one addition to that group, which would make sense. And you say, well, why would that make sense? Well, you remember Pastor Matt preached on Doubting Thomas last week. And so Thomas had already missed out one time. So basically, wherever everybody went, Thomas was going because he wasn't going to miss anything else. You know, after he saw Jesus and, and, and put his fingers in the nail holes and felt his side, that was it. He wasn't missing anything else. Anything big happened, he was going to be there. So he was hanging out. So the Bible tells us that they're, they're no longer in Jerusalem. They're at the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee. And the Romans had renamed it after Tiberius Caesar. So they're, they're at the Sea of Galilee. So they now have traveled 60 miles, which is a long way. It would be like me or you walking to New Orleans. How long will it, would it take you to walk to New Orleans? And not empty-handed, but carrying some supplies for the journey. It would take a while. And so they've traveled a while, but they haven't just randomly gone here. A lot of people want to just jump on the, the, the bandwagon of, 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 you know, just saying that they're doing something they ought not do. Well, Jesus made it clear 
that he wanted them to go to Galilee and wait for them. Now, he did say to go on the mountain and wait for them, but nonetheless, he said go to Galilee. So they're going to Galilee as they've been instructed to do. But the whole time, you have to just have in your mind this sense that Peter's hurting. And he doesn't feel very useful. And, and if you get a sense of Peter's personality, that he's a very outgoing relational person, and, and he, he cares a lot what other people think, and he's you know, very spontaneous and spunky, and so he's clearly not himself. I mean... Somebody in his situation would be, uh, you know, would be a little timid, a little down, which is not like him. And so, but he's still someone who has influence. He's still the one, even in this sense, that says, I'm going fishing, and they follow. And so, they go. The Bible says, and immediately they go out in the boat, and that night they caught nothing. You know... I know that these were professional fishermen. And I know that they were really good at catching fish because before Jesus came on the scene, they supported their families and made their livelihood catching fish. But I also know that the Bible doesn't portray a very, a very talented group of fishermen, does it? Because every time it seems like they go fishing, it's a strikeout. I mean, they... they I'm sure there were many, many times where they did really, really good. But all we ever hear about is what sorry fishermen they are. So they go fishing all night, catch nothing. Well, why? Well, well, because that's what God does. That's how God's always worked. Because God loves His children. And when God's trying to get the attention of His children, He uses uh, whatever's going on in their life to get their attention. And so, he makes it to where they don't catch anything. Now, you can imagine how that feels to have labored and toiled at something all night or all day or worked at something all week or been, been focused on something for a long time and then it just you know, seems like it's pointless and you don't understand why it's not working and you can't seem to get any headway and you can't seem to, to move forward. But, but I mean, this isn't the, this isn't a, the, the, the first time that, that this whole scenario has taken place. It happened in the very beginning back in Luke chapter 5 where they were fishing all night and caught nothing and Jesus shows up. And so this is how God works. But still... If ever they needed to have a good night of fishing, it would have been here. Especially Peter, because he's the one that said, let's go fishing. They're fishing on his home turf. They're probably in Peter's boat. I don't know that for sure. But the last time, everything else seems to line up. And the last time they were there, Jesus got in Peter's boat and shoved out to the shore because there was so many people packed around the shoreline to hear Jesus. So it's probably Peter's boat. But either way, they're in his home turf. Listen, if you haven't been fishing for three years and suddenly you're back fishing again in your hometown, in your sweet spot, you're going to the best spot you got. You're going to the one place you know that you can always catch fish. So that's what they do, and it's a washout. It's nothing. And so there has to be a high level of frustration, to say the least. And we can relate to that. I mean, maybe you're here today, and 
You want to know about God. You want to know what God's doing in your life. You want to understand why things are the way they are around you. You're uncertain about things. You, you feel vulnerable about things. There are things certainly in your life and my life that, there's a, uh, that are a source of shame and that we don't want to broadcast to everyone. Maybe you're uncertain about what other people think. I think Peter's feeling all these emotions. I think Peter's wondering, am I going to see Jesus again? If I do see him again, how's that going to go? Is he going to accept me? Is he going to reject me? Am I going to get rebuked or pounded for the things that I've done? Or how is that going to go? And so the story's not over, and which leads us to number two. Now, there's the stranger on the shore. So a stranger appears on the shore. And just like last time, verse 4 says, But when morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Now, again, you see the similarity about the way Jesus responds, whether it's fear two weeks ago, doubt last week, now we're dealing with, with shame and failure. It's the same thing every time. Jesus comes right into the middle of our challenge, right? He comes right into it. So if you're fearful and hunkered down in a room, he comes right into the room. If you're full of doubt, he comes right up to you and says, here, feel my hands, feel my side. He comes right into the midst of our situation. And so he shows up. And it's a different way than we often think, right? We just don't oftentimes think of Jesus as entering right into the midst of our pain or in the midst of our struggle. But that's what he does. You see, he doesn't wait until after it dies down. He comes to us when. When we are ashamed. When we are broken. When we are suffering in our failure. You know, it's, it's not when we get it together. It's not when we start behaving rightly. He comes in the midst of it. And he doesn't send someone else. He comes himself right there into where we're struggling. He sees the shame and the failure that's permeating our lives. I mean, he knows as he's standing on the shore, this is what I wonder. You ever spent much time on the water? Some of you know some things about being on the water. One truth is, is that sound carries a long way on the water, doesn't it? Especially early in the morning when it's typically very, very still at sunrise. And so I just wonder, as Jesus stands there and he's listening to this conversation going on, this high level of frustration about not catching any fish. And there's nobody in a, in a good mood after spending all night catching zero fish. And he's standing there listening. And he also knows that he knows what's going on in Peter's heart. He knows that more than anything, Peter wishes he could just go back and start over. You know, if I could just start over, if I could just, if I could just take back 
those events. I mean, I could live with everything else, but if, it just, if I could just go back and not have that moment where I denied Christ, why did I do that? I mean, of all things, to a little girl. What a moment of weakness. And so God knows that. But God also knows there's nothing Peter can do about it. Because what's done is done. And he comes right into the midst of his brokenness. And he's standing there. And that's God's way. That's what he does. See, he... He tells us that he came to seek and to save that which is lost. See, he's seeking. It doesn't say that that which is lost is seeking him, and then he reveals himself. He's the one seeking that which is lost, that no one seeks after God. That's what the book of Romans says. No, no one does. It's God who's the seeker. And so to a boat full of broken, discouraged, grumpy fishermen, and one especially broken Jesus comes standing there. So there he is that morning. You know, I, I say this all the time, but faith is, it's impossible. It's impossible. The only way faith comes is if God initiates it, if God allows it. I mean, if you and me find God, we should be forever thankful because the only way that that ever happens is because he revealed himself to us. It wasn't that we just went out there and in our own ingenuity found him. That's not how it works. And as we look back on our faith journey, we realize how God has used the people, the places, and the circumstances of our life to, to lead us and guide us and position us to be able to see him, to, to have opportunity to respond to him. So I guess really as I think about it, the question is, If God asks us a question, because I feel like he always is. It's not, it's not if God will, but when God asks us questions, will we answer them honestly? Or will we answer them the way we oftentimes answer other people? Will we be honest with God when he asks us a question? Will you be honest with God if he asks you a question this morning? Will you be completely honest with him? So look at what Jesus says in verse 5. He asks a question. He says, children, have you any food? That, the word translated children, I mean, which is the best way to translate it. It's the word paideia. It's the word where we get pediatrics. It's, so it's, it's sort of like in our vernacular... A group of men are fishing on a boat and some wise guy on the shore says, Hey, boys, got any fish? Now, that's not exactly what you want to say to a group of guys who've been fishing all night and haven't caught anything. You know what I mean? You don't want to be that person who is standing at the dock and, you know, you're you pull your boat up and you're unloading your stuff and they're standing there and goes, well, it looks like you didn't catch anything today. That's a good way to get punched. I mean, 
Don't point out the obvious when somebody's had a bad day of fishing. You just want to leave that alone. And then to call them boys, that could add insult to injury. But he asks a question. But why is God always asking questions? Because he's always asking questions. He's asking Adam and Eve questions in the garden. He's asking everybody questions through the Old Testament. He's been asking questions all the way through the Gospel of John. He keeps encountering people. He's asking people, do you want to be well? He's asking people, do you want this? Do you want that? He's asking people. Every question he asks, he already knows the answer. So why is he asking questions? Well, the same reason he asks you questions, the same reason he asks me questions. God's not trying to gain information. He already knows the answer to the questions that he's asking us. This isn't about finding anything new out. But by asking questions, he's giving us opportunity to own the reality of our circumstances, isn't he? See, when he asks a question, when he says, Adam, where are you? He knows where Adam is. But he's giving Adam an opportunity to own the reality that he's sinned against God and he's hiding from it. When he asks them a question, you know, you got any food? You caught any fish? He knows the answer. But he wants them to affirm their reality. And you have a choice. You, you don't have to answer. Listen, you can, you can stay in denial. And you can just keep telling God when he asks you a question, you can just keep saying, God, no, I got this. Everything's fine. Everything's going to work out fine. I'm in control. I can, I can quit doing this anytime I want to. Or, you know, I, I'm, I've, I've got everything working the way I'm wanting to go or the way I'm wanting to, or I don't need any help or it's fine. It's not really a problem or all the things that we say. But when, is when we're making excuses, we're still under the influence of the deceiver. See, there's no help, there's no, there's no restoration, there's no rescue until we come to the place where we're answering the questions honestly. Or when God asks a simple question like, well, do you have any food? You say, no, I don't. See, they're a hundred yards out in the water. They don't know who's standing on the shore. They don't know how long he's been standing there, but here's what they know. You can't see in the boat from 100 yards out, and surely he hasn't been standing there all night. And they've been out there all night. So he doesn't know what they have in the boat. So it would have been a perfect opportunity to either say, hey, partner, none of your business. I'm surprised Peter said, I'm fixing to come in there and show you who a boy is, it wouldn't surprise me. Or you could just say, yeah, we got some. Yeah, it's all right. We're good. It's been slow tonight, but I got a freezer full at home or whatever. They say no. So he comes to us and he says, how you doing? What's your answer? God says to you this morning, how you doing? What do you say? Oh, I'm okay. See, don't answer God the way you answer people in the hallway. Oh, everything's fine. I'm good. 
See, because he knows. He's not asking you for information. The rest of us, we don't know, but he knows. So when he says, how are you doing? He's looking for you to grapple with the reality of how you're actually doing. He's gauging your readiness. He's preparing you for something good. You see, the blessing of verse 6 doesn't come until after the honesty of verse 5. You notice that? Look at verse 6. They answer honestly, and then Jesus said, Well, cast your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Now, what if they would have said, Oh, no, we're good. You think Jesus would have said, well, then why don't you try it? No. The reason he said what he said is because they said what they said. It's just a good reminder for us. That, you know, we serve a God who knows everything, so let's don't play games with him. When we're struggling and when we're toiling, when, we've, when we're in a difficult season, let's be honest. God, I'm struggling. God, I'm down. God, I'm weak. God, I'm, I'm ashamed. God, whatever it is, he already knows. But there's something amazing that happens when we come to him in honesty and transparency and openness. And it's a posture of our heart that says, I'm ready, Lord, for you to do something in me. I'm done making excuses. I'm done denying or trying to dodge or deflect. See, what Jesus is saying to us this morning is, I know where what you're looking for is. See, they've been fishing all night. And Jesus doesn't say to them, now you really got to think about this. He doesn't say, well, hey, why don't you come in here? I got some food ready for you, which he does. He doesn't say that. He asked them, do they have any food? They said no. Why didn't he just say, well, why don't you come up here? I got some food for you. But that's not what he says. Because he knows what they've been looking for all night. See, he knows what you've been looking for. He knows what you've been struggling after. He knows what you've been, been striving in. He knows, what's, he knows what's going on inside of you. He knows where what you're looking for is. He knows the solution to your problem. If we just get honest with God and stop acting like everything's okay, something miraculous will start happening. God will start moving. He'll start working. And so he tells them where to throw their net. Now, again, at this point, they still don't know who he is. So there's more things that astonish me here. There's a lot of things. But there's another one, which is, why do they listen to him? I mean, I really spent a lot of time thinking about this. You know what my nature is? My nature would be that if I were fishing all night and I were a fisherman and I hadn't caught anything, and some strangers on the shore and called me boy and then asked me if I had any food. And I said no. Now we're stretching it to get to this point. 
And then he said, well, why don't you try the right side? I'm swimming in. Look here. Do you think I've been out here all night? Like, we're only going to fish the left side, fellas. That's all we're going to do. Do not throw it to the right side. I've fished here all my life. I've never caught a fish on the right side of the boat. Of course they've already fished on the right side. I mean, come on, man. I fished the front, the back, the left, the right. We've been going around in circles all night. What do you mean throw it to the right? I mean, who says that? And they do it. I mean, they are down. Maybe they're just starving. You know, they've all left their livelihood. And they've been with Jesus for three years. Now Jesus isn't here. So, you know, I don't know what they've been doing for the, uh, this, this interlude without him. So maybe they're just, man, they're, they're so hungry. They're like, okay, we'll try it. But he says throw it to the other side. So they throw it. And guess what? It's full of fish. See, he knows where what we're looking for is. He, he knows where the acceptance you're looking for is. He knows where the peace you're looking for is. He knows where the companionship you're looking for is. He knows where all of that is. He knows where the meaning that you're looking for is. He knows where that is. He knows exactly what's going on. And he knows exactly where to find the things that we're looking for. And so when the net fills up with fish, suddenly the light bulb comes on. And now the disciple that Jesus loved, the one who's always the first to know, says, ding, 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 ding. It's the Lord. But he doesn't, listen, he's in a boat full of his compadres. And he doesn't say to any of them, it's the Lord. He says it to Peter. Don't you think everyone in the boat is excited that it's the Lord? Don't you think everyone in the boat is equally given their life to follow him? Don't you think everyone in the boat has been on this journey for three years together, has all sacrificed equally? Don't you think everybody in the boat is super fired up and going to be equally excited that the Lord's on the shore? And yet John, when he realizes who it is, doesn't say anything to Nathaniel or to Thomas or to anybody else. He says, hey, Peter, that's the Lord. Which tells me that his close friends understood the depth of his pain. And he knew that the one in the boat that would care the most that it was God. They all care. But the one who needed to see Jesus the most was Peter. And he looked at his friend Peter and said, hey, that's Jesus. So Peter, my goodness, as only he can. The Bible says he jumps up when he heard that it was the Lord and he, he put on his outer garment. I, you know, I thought about entitling this message, Fishing in Your Drawers. <laughs> I am not fishing with a bunch of dudes in their underwear. That's not happening. Not happening. No naked and afraid fishing for me. Mm -mm. So clearly this is a cultural situation that I'm not connecting to so he puts his outer garment on look you're if you're already stripped down 
you're going to put your garment on to jump in? I mean, what is happening here? So the only thing I can figure is, is that Peter didn't want to swim up on the shore in his underwear in front of Jesus. Which still doesn't make any sense to me because you were just on a boat with your six best friends. So I don't know. But anyway, that's what I'm thinking. So he plunges into the sea. But it's telling us something about Peter, isn't it? Not only his desperation to see God, but listen, they're in a boat. They're going to get there, which they do. But he plunges in. And so again, he's, he's not waiting for them to row in. He's not waiting for them to figure. He is working his way back into the good graces of the Lord. Look, God, look at how, how desperate I am to see you. Look at how much I miss you. Look at how much I want to be with you. Look at me, swimming in my big, heavy, wet robe, struggling, flopping around, trying to get up there. Verse 8 says, but the other disciples came in in the boat. They weren't that far out. And they're dragging the net with fish. Hmm. Now, Jesus is about to make a point for us this morning. He's about to give us a, there's a gospel moment right here. And, And it's a, it's just how the Bible tells the gospel in a thousand different ways so that it will impact us in a thousand different ways. And, and because we're, we're different and we receive it in different ways and, and we hear things differently as different people. And so here's the gospel right here. It's, it's Jesus saying, I can't count on you, but you can count on me. Look, he's jumping in, and he's paddling his way up there in his robe. And as if to say, God, you can, you can depend on me now. I'm dependable. Like, I'm, I'm still your guy. Like, look, look at me striving to do this. And God's saying, no, you're not dependable. I'm dependable. You're not going to come through. I'm going to come through. You're not the one who's going to do the right thing. I'm going to do the right thing. So he gets up to the shore. And then lastly, they encounter the Savior who makes breakfast for failures. The Savior who makes breakfast for failures. What a beautiful picture. The Bible says in verse 9, Then as soon as they had come to the land, they saw the fire of coals there and the fish laid on it and the bread. Which should make you scratch your head for a minute and say, well, what, what, what now? See, as Peter is, you ever, you ever seen, you just imagine what somebody looks like, you know, coming up out of the water fully dressed. You know, like coming up out of the, 
I, I, you know, the, 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 war, the, the ground is soft and they're slugging their way up there, you know, and they weigh 20 or 30 extra pounds and, you know, they're huffing and puffing and they're out of breath. And so Peter's coming up onto shore and Jesus already has everything they need. He's got the fire going. He's got the fish cooking. He's got the bread baked. He's got everything they need already laid out. He's already done. Jesus doesn't need you or me to bring anything. He doesn't need anything. He's already got all everything that we need. He's got it. But look at what he does. He invites us to participate. See, notice, this whole thing has been about them. It doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. They're, they're dragging this boat in. Peter's slopping his way up the shoreline. Jesus already has everything. This whole conversation about, do you have any food? No. Well, why don't you cast over there? Then you'll get a bunch of food. But he doesn't need food. He's already got food. It's already cooking. The fire's there. Everything. But he invites us to participate. Look at verse 10. Jesus said, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Now, he already has fish. Let me, let me just explain something to you. If you can, by your sovereign authority and power, make it to where when you throw a net over one side of the boat, which you've done a thousand times in the last 12 hours, it utterly fills with fish in a way that it would never naturally possibly do. You have enough control to do that. Now listen, what you don't need is any more fish. You got all the fish you could ever need. He's already made the fire, got the fish, got the bread, which I'm sure he didn't labor for for more than about a second. He just willed it, and it was there. And so there it is. He doesn't need any more fish, and yet he tells them, bring some of your fish. It's like when he feeds the 5,000. He doesn't need anything, but yet he takes the little boy's lunch, right? He uses the little things that we have. He invites us into the story to participate in the story. He wants us to be part of the journey with him to show us how he is and how it works. And so he says, bring some of your fish. And Peter, who's trying to show God how, how dependable he is and how trustworthy he is and how zealous he is and how serious he is, he just swam all the way in, jumps up again, soaking wet and out of breath, jumps up again, verse 11, and he starts dragging the net in that's full of fish up onto the land. He counts the fish because how else would we know how many? He counts them all so that he knows how many are there. And although there were so many, the net didn't break. Peter's saying, look, God, look at me. Am I doing good? Are we going to be okay, me and you? Jesus is saying, no, you don't understand. You don't understand. God doesn't need you to show him all the things you can do for him. That's not what he needs. God wants you to show the world what he can do through you. This isn't about what me and you can do for God. Peter's caught up in trying to earn his way back into good graces with God. Peter's fallen into a trap that, that so many people in our day fall into where they're just trying to, to do good things so that God will be pleased with them. And listen, it's never about us trying to show God all the things we can do for Him. He doesn't, God doesn't, God doesn't need 
any of those fish. He's already got everything that's needed. But he shows us his power and authority. He invites us to participate in the journey with him. What a beautiful picture. Have you ever just been tired and worn out? You just feel like you do and you do and you do and nobody appreciates it and, and it's just not getting you anywhere and, 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 and God doesn't appreciate it. He doesn't see it. He doesn't notice it. And, and you're, you're worn out from swimming to the shore and trying to outswim everybody else and you're, you're tired from being the one that has to drag the net up and you're, you're tired from the one who's saying, look, God, look at how many fish are in the net and you're just wanting to be this, you know, you're, you're, you're that, that child who, who wants wants mom and dad to notice them, wants them to know that you're special, always wanting to outdo the other children so that you can get some attention. And it just wears you out. Listen, you don't relate to God that way. God doesn't relate to us that way. He told them to throw the net on the other side of the the boat because he just wanted them to experience His power and authority. He's revealing himself to them. But when they drag the net up, he says, well, bring one. Bring a couple of your fish up here. What does Jesus want then? If he he doesn't want us to to jump in, hurl ourselves in and swim up, be the first one. If he doesn't want us to drag up the net. If he doesn't want us to, I mean, if he doesn't want us to be the one that outdoes everybody else. Well, what does he want? Well, I'll tell you what he wants. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to know you and love you. He wants you to know and love him. He wants to spend time with you. He wants to look at verse 12. He wants to eat breakfast with you. He said, come and eat breakfast. This Jesus... Look at what he does. How does he respond to us in our failure and in our shame? Does he say, well, well, look at what a moron you are. Look at what a failure you are. Does he scream at us? Does Does he yell at us? Does he condemn us? Does he, or does he just overwhelm us in his, in his love and his understanding and his nurture? Peter's trying so desperately to know in his heart that everything's going to be okay. And Jesus says, come and eat. Let's eat breakfast together. Peter's suffocating under a mountain of shame. God comes right into the midst of his world. The gospel just couldn't end in chapter 20 because that's not God's economy. He doesn't think like we think. He doesn't love like we love. There's more than just the fact that he's resurrected that he's defeated sin and death, that he's made a way for us to be his children, adopted into his family and know him eternally. There's there's more than that. 
There's the here and the now. There's the moment right now where God's saying to you and to me, I want you to know how much I love you right now. I want you to know how much I care about you right now. I want you to know how special you are to me right now. I want you to know that when you feel distant from me, I still want to sit and eat with you. When you don't think that I'll invite you to be a part of what I'm doing, I will. I'm just fascinated by this. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, Then as soon as they came to land, they saw the fire of coals there and the fish laid on it and the bread. Now, it just seems like it's just a very simple sentence, but something stands out there. Do you see that phrase, a fire of coals? Have you ever noticed that everywhere else in the Scripture, whenever fire is mentioned, which is a gazillion times, it's just fire. It never says a fire of coals except for one other place. See, in John 18, when, Jesus, uh, when Peter was warming himself around a fire and he denied Jesus, it was a fire of coals. Jesus has recreated the moment of Peter's failure. And then I started thinking about how, do you know what our strongest source of memory is? It's our sense of smell. You know that? By far. I can be anywhere. It doesn't matter where I am. If my wife wears a very distinct and unique perfume that very few people wear, if I walk into a room where somebody has been who wears that perfume, who, by the way, none of you in this fellowship wear this perfume because I would have known it. When I smell that perfume, no matter where I am and no matter what I'm doing, I'm immediately flooded with thoughts of my wife. Immediately. You think about how, how strong your sense of smell is to take you to a place or a time or a thing that sometimes you can see things and you can't remember the details of what you saw or you heard things and you don't remember exactly how you heard it, but you smell something and you remember that. You remember that. When I walk into the youth building, that building just has a, a, a smell. And when I walk into that building, I'm just immediately flooded with memories of all the things I've seen God do in that building. Not the least of which was save me. And so Peter comes up and here's this fire of coals, this moment being recreated. And Jesus is saying, you know, Peter... I know that you're broken. I know that you're a mess. I know that you need to be fixed. I understand. But you see, I've lived the perfect life that you couldn't live. And, and when all these events that have led us to this point, Peter, occurred, they occurred so that I could free you from all of this once and for all. You see, it wouldn't be right for us to 
It wouldn't be right for us to come into uh, a place like this every Easter or any other day and have this big celebration about our gratitude and, and the glorious reality of the resurrection. It wouldn't be right for us to do that if we walk out the doors and live as if it never happened. Now, would it? You see, it's the resurrection, as amazing and earth-shattering as it is, it's about what it now transcends into our daily lives, what it means today, now, in this moment for you and for me. This is the message of, of chapter 21. It's God saying, could it be that maybe this morning you got all dressed up and came to church and, you know, you got a smile on your face like everything's okay, but God's asking you, how are you this morning? And you're so tempted to just shrug it off. Because somehow you feel like it's just easier if we just don't connect to that brokenness that's inside of us. But in reality, we're only making it worse. Hiding it and denying it is never going to get us where we need to be. You're tired of struggling in your own strength. You're tired. Disappointing yourself and others. You're just tired. Finally, you get to the point where you convince yourself that God's not interested in you because you've done too much. You're going too far. And God's saying, hey, I don't want you to swim to the shore. I don't want you to pull up the net full of fish. I don't want you to count them and show me how hard you're willing to work for me. I want you to eat breakfast with me. I love you. I really, really love you. And I love you for who you really are. And it's a love that you can't experience anywhere else because nobody else can know you like I know you. That's what he's saying. And when we get to this place, we realize that is the gospel, isn't it? It's not what we bring to the table, but it's who's inviting us to the table. It's Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears and opens the door, I'll come in and dine with him and he with me. I'm not going to come in and beat you over the head. Before I ever knocked on the door, God's saying, I knew that you're not perfect. I know all the mistakes that you've made. I know all the things that you're hiding. I know all the things that are causing you to struggle. I know all about your shame and your insecurity. I know all about that. I've always known about that. But what I want you to see is that I'm not waiting for you to figure it out and fix it. I'm coming to you in the midst of your struggle and knocking on the door. See, I'm not busting the door down. I'm not forcing my way in. I'm knocking on the door. I'm asking you a question. I'm saying, how are you? And I'm giving you the freedom to answer. But if you open up your heart to me, if you're truthful with me, if you, if you acknowledge the reality of your situation with me, then I'll come in. 
and I won't condemn you. I'll sit down and eat with you, and I'll help you. He's knocking. I just believe this morning he's knocking. And you've heard his voice. He's asking, hey, are you okay in there? Are you okay this morning? Not because he wants information. He already knows. So for those of us who still maybe yet, after all of this, still believe that maybe we've just gone too far. Pastor, I, I hear what you're saying, and man, it sounds good, but you just don't know me. You don't know, oh boy, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know how long it's been going on. You just don't know. You're right, I don't. I think what, what Jesus would say to you this morning is, You can't let down me. You can't let me down because you've never been holding me up. I'm the one that's been holding you up this whole time. And what you don't realize is that even as you were running from me and thinking you were hiding from me, I've been holding you up. So stop worrying about letting me down because you've never held me up. So he's knocking this morning. Are you hearing? Are you answering? How are you doing? I mean, really, how are you doing? Let's stand and bow our heads.